Hello and welcome to the Women in Sport podcast sponsored by CSM Live. If you've got a bike gathering dust in your shed, this podcast is definitely going to inspire you to get it out, pump up the tyres and feel the wind in your hair. Throughout history, the bike has symbolised more than a mode of transport for women. Known as freedom machines, they've helped women to break from some of the confinements of their gender. As the women's rights activist Susan B. Anthony wrote, bikes have done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. As you'll be all too aware, women throughout history have been written out of much of sporting history. But my guest on this week's podcast episode has changed that by uncovering some incredible stories of pioneering women who fought not only for their right to ride a bike, but for their freedom. So I'm so pleased to welcome author Hannah Ross, who has written Revolutions, How Women Change the World on Two Wheels. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for that very lovely introduction. And I hope you're right. It does inspire some people to get their dusty bikes out. That was really the purpose of writing the book as well, to get people back on their bikes or on bikes for the first time. Good. So, I mean, you're clearly passionate about cycling. Where does your love of cycling stem from? I learned, like many people, not everyone, but I learned to ride as a child. It was great fun riding around with my friends around the neighborhood gives you a little bit of freedom from an early you know quite an early age and then I stopped like lots of well lots of women I know I stopped sort of in my mid-teens and didn't go back to it for quite a while it wasn't until my mid-20s when I moved to London and actually it wasn't at first about commuting which is probably a bit of an unusual um, way back in cycling because often that is the way that people come back to bikes it was actually more about getting out of London and doing long rides at the weekends um, and they became longer and longer. I became obsessed by having all my holidays around cycling and yes, commuting all around London. The sort of idea of having to get the tube to work now is really quite unpleasant. So yeah, it just became more and more of a kind of fixture in my life and, and a part of that was then becoming more and more aware of the fact that so fewer women cycle in this country anyway than men and and feeling really frustrated by that and also just by the sort of general representation and, and discourse around cycling generally tended to focus on the sport of cycling particularly you know races like the Tour de France which up until this year <laughs> have largely excluded women which you know gives a very skewed idea of of what cycling is your journey is very much like some of the pioneering women we're going to hear about you know wanting to get out of the confinements of the city and experience the freedom and uh, and, and go on an adventure so it sounds very much like you know you were almost following in some of those um I want to say footsteps but that's probably not the right word in this yeah case. cycle tracks <laughs> yeah I mean in, in terms of the stories in the book they're very varied um, I look at all different types of cycling but for me personally um, yeah the stories of the of the travelers doing the long distance journeys particularly the women and I look at a number of women back in the 1890s who did really kind of epic journeys which was in the context of of what was happening then and and the sort of prejudice against women cycling it was even more extraordinary what they achieved so yeah those stories really excited me 
Well, let's come on to the book because I've just been listening to it actually on my audiobook. And it's a real roller coaster of emotion. It makes me really cross in parts. And yeah, at some points I laughed out loud, but I think the, what came through most for me was just the motivation and the bravery of some of these women. And it made me think, gosh, I need to get on my bike. And I, now I really want to go and do a cycle tour. So I think your aim of wanting to inspire people to get back on their bike, well, it, I've certainly felt that by, um, by reading your book. But talk to me a little bit then about some of the pioneers in the 1890s. As you just alluded to there, they did fear, face some really, really stiff opposition to, to being on a bike. Men really weren't happy, were they? I mean, you know, we had... Some of them were shouted at claims of infertility, a manly gait and promiscuity. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but give us an overview of what life was like in that era for women. Yeah, so we're looking at, so when the bicycle as we sort of would recognise it today, what, what was then called the safety bicycle was invented, this was the mid-1880s. And up prior to this, there were various incarnations of bicycles. The most probably recognisable to people today would be the penny farthing or high wheel, which is which is that sort of really outlandish looking machine where with the huge, enormous rear wheel and the sort of huge, enormous front wheel, sorry, and the little tiny wheel in the back, which if we think about what women were wearing at this time, what women were expected to wear, which was great big floor length skirts, petticoats, corsets, Riding a bicycle where you had sort of used a sort of prop to get right up there into the saddle and you were then at this precarious thing, you had all this fabric flapping around. I mean, it just wasn't ever something women could do. It was far too dangerous. Cycling was very much a male-dominated activity. And also we have to sort of remember what there was at this time. Women's lives were very constrained restricted they have no um, voting rights they have no economic rights they have very few freedoms that we kind of have today their lives are very very constricted so when the safety bicycle came along this was a machine which which was generally a bit safer for um, women to ride with skirts it wasn't perfect but they soon started developing women's specific bicycles with drop bars where women could step on easily with their skirts they had chain guards to stop skirts getting caught up in all the machinery and women did start riding bikes and, and the numbers grew quite quickly which as everything we've said talked about how women's lives are very restricted at this time it's very understandable that they would have been attracted to this object, which was fun, completely new, and could take them to take them places, um, which was a real novelty. It was novelty for everyone, but but particularly for women. You know, the numbers started building. But at this time, we think about women and sport. There was no women's sport at this time. Tennis was kind of beginning to become a thing. And there was women's horse riding. There was sort of a number of, sort of upper class sports which were generally took place kind of behind closed doors or behind fences so there was croquet but women weren't generally encouraged from using their bodies in a physical way at all women rode horses side saddle it's incredibly controversial the idea of straddling a horse so when it came to bicycles the idea of straddling a bicycle again was just absolutely horrifying to some people many people 
vehemently opposed the idea of women getting on bicycles for a number of reasons, but really it all came down to the idea that they wouldn't be able to control women in the way that they had done, that women had this freezer machine, as you'd referred to, which is essentially essentially what it was. There were lots of ideas put out there which were completely wrong to try and discourage women from getting onto a bicycle and some of these they came from the sort of the medical community so they suggested that women riding bicycles just the act of sitting on a saddle caused them to become infertile it might cause them to become promiscuous which was quite an interesting one certain manufacturers then started developing different types of bike saddles so specifically designed for women which is quite ironic now because sort of lack of technology around bikes is uh, still a problem but then they put sort of lots of effort into making a bike seat that they claim wouldn't stimulate women sexually which is which is a, a really bonkers idea that they came up with and this was the idea that yeah it would it would make you promiscuous um so there were all sorts of very strange things going on um and another thing that they really people really didn't like is some women very sensibly decided that they didn't want to cycle in skirts it was it was too dangerous they wanted to wear trousers and so this outfit was devised it was called rational dress and it sort of generally featured trousers that fell just below the knee quite baggy jackets no corsets which again was quite controversial and this really horrified people the idea of women wearing trousers you know even if it was just for this activity although many women wanted to incorporate this into their lives in general because they were so fed up with having to wear great big long skirts that got tangled up in everything and and were again really fundamentally designed to stop women going very far (laughs) these women wanted to change their everything about their lives and the bicycle kind of really neatly fitted into that kind of desire to have more freedom and independence that definitely ruffled a lot of feathers. And it was um, talking about dress, Lady Harbison, that caused quite a stir of her day um, by walking into a hotel in, in as you say, rational dress. Um, tell us a little yeah. bit more about her. Yeah, so she was um, she was a really keen cyclist um, and she was off, I think, on a Sunday cycle ride around Surrey. Um, and she decided to stop off for a cup of coffee, refreshment, at a hotel called the the, Ho- the Ho- Haute Boy Hotel, which um, I think possibly is still there. Um, and she walked into the coffee lounge and was met by the landlady who said she could not have entry into the coffee lounge dressed as she was. Um, and Lady Harberton was just outraged at the idea that um, she would be barred entry um, into a venue just on the account of the fact that she was wearing trousers. Um, I should also mention that Lady Harberton was quite an active campaigner on the issue of women's dress. And so although she was a very passionate cyclist in her own right, her other um, passion was to rationalise women's dress in general she she wanted women to be able to wear trousers because she thought it was completely um 
absurd that women's lives should be constrained by the wearing of um, corsets and petticoats and all those things that kind of, yeah, as I said. I love her. She sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The landlady said that she could have a drink in the bar, which at that time, women didn't really drink in bars. Well, not very often and certainly not titled ladies. So that was a suggestion that was never going to be realistic. But also the issue was still that she was being barred entry into a coffee lounge. So she decided to go to court and sue the hotel. And she was supported by the Cyclist Touring Club, which is now UK Cycling. And they brought her case to court. And unfortunately, they lost on the grounds that the Hope Boy Hotel had actually offered her an alternative. So they hadn't refused her entirely. But she had made her point. She got it in newspapers. It had become a sensational story at that time. And that's that's what she wanted. I mean, she wanted to sit in the coffee lounge without being <laughs> obstructed, but but she also wanted to really raise awareness of this this issue of women's dress. I think it's really, really interesting, some of the parallels of today as well, because women's dress um, for, you know, when it comes to cycling is, is still a barrier to, to many women. You know, you see a lot of women not wanting to wear the lycra that more elite cyclists wear. But also if you think about kind of commuting to work, you know, wearing dresses and heels isn't ideal dress for cycling to work. And obviously, you know, having your hair done and putting a helmet on and all of that kind of stuff. So it's really interesting, you know, a hundred and, you know, whatever we are now, 30 years on from this time, that actually there's still parallel, albeit not quite the same. And we have a little bit more freedom now. We don't have to wear long skirts and corsets, but there's still the same kind of barriers that are happening. A woman on a bicycle is still a political thing, whereas men have always just been able to sit on a bicycle and go wherever they want to do, wherever, wear whatever they want to wear. Um, but yes, you're right. It's still an issue. I was um, saw some tweets circulating this weekend that someone I, I actually don't can't remember who it was a picture of a woman wearing high heels on a bicycle with two children. It was a cargo bike with two children on the back, and this this person on Twitter was critiquing the fact that they were wearing high heels, and it just <laughs> there's almost nothing that we can do that's not commented on. In some way. Yeah. Well, it comes to the idea of judgment, isn't it? You know, yeah. as women historically, you know, we've been judged and we still are judged for, for many things and, and appearance is certainly one of those things. And, you know, that hasn't changed, unfortunately, in yeah. all of that time. But women should be able to wear, this is such an obvious thing, but women should be able to wear whatever they want on bicycles. Um, and I know we'll come to this, but, you know, this this does have a big impact on the um, participation of women um, in cycling. And where you go to countries where there's much higher participation, women do just wear whatever they want to wear. It has it has huge repercussions. Yeah. I mean, coming back to the idea of, of freedom, as we've mentioned, I think it's really interesting as well to kind of parallel um, how women were feeling in the 1890s and feeling that confinement to actually our kind of very recent history with the um, COVID-19 pandemic um, and being confined to our houses. And obviously, during that time, we saw a real uplift in participation, especially of women cycling, um, 
to, you know, to be able to go out and experience that freedom that we we didn't have because it had all been taken away from us. So um, I think that's a really interesting parallel. But unfortunately, now we, we've kind of been allowed out of our houses. There's more cars on the road. We're starting to see that that decline again of, of cycling. I mean, of all the things that came out of the pandemic, this was something that was was really positive. It had very little chance of lasting because fundamentally there wasn't change on a on a large scale because it's all about safety it's always all about the fact that women felt suddenly felt safe on the streets because there were so few cars um and it was so lovely to see children bicycling families out on roads and you just never ever see that because people just feel generally it's just too dangerous um and I was yeah so encouraged I saw you know people out with cycle trainers um you know going through kind of cycle safety in in levels that I'd just never seen before but yes we've 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 just gone back to we've reverted now to to how things were back in 2019 so it's understandable that that kind of level of participation has has dropped off um and you know it's it's not difficult to work it out. Again, if you go to countries like the Netherlands, Denmark, they have amazing infrastructure for cycling where you just do not even have to think about it. No one wears a helmet. Um, you never have to share the road um, with cars. There's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's and all, if you do, it's all kind of incredibly managed. Um, it's just, and there, the level of participation of women, it's 50% and above. Um, so it's, it's, it's really the, you know, the answer is very straightforward. It's not, it's not more complicated than that. We need safe cycling infrastructure to get more women cycling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I had that in my own life as well. I mean, during lockdown, my, my daughter was four and my son was six and we just, we went on daily bike rides together. I had a tow bar on my bike for my daughter and it was wonderful, um but yeah as you say ever since the restrictions were lifted and the cars are back on the road I I, I don't feel safe taking two young yeah. children out especially we've got quite a lot of country lanes around us and cars go up there quite quickly um so we've we've stopped doing it um as as much well certainly not on the road you will go off road but you know that becomes a little bit more restrictive clearly um but yeah it, it is hard and I you know I started commuting into um into Manchester a couple of years ago when I was working in there and it it took me quite a long time to work up the confidence to do it because you've got to find the route and then you've got to find a route where you're not going up one of the busiest inroads into Manchester that there is with lots of buses and lots of cars and you know that you do hear about lots of accidents um so and, and that's quite hard and then of course you know to try and avoid the roads you're then going down quite quiet paths um on your own late you know late in the morning and sort of into the evening and again as a woman you have that vulnerability on a bike that makes you feel less safe so you, you almost can't win either it's on the road and you've got the, the, the cars to compete with or very quiet back lanes where you know you you feel a sense of unease as a woman yeah absolutely um yeah I would I would completely agree so, with that 
Moving on a little bit more back back to the book, um, what I really, really love is, and, and we we've alluded to them, is the the really strong and inspirational women that you've managed to to find and tell their stories, which is amazing. Um, and one of those that I, I really like to to hear the story of was Annie Londonderry. Now I know that isn't her real name, and I'm sure you can tell us her, her real name in a minute, but um she became the first woman to bike around the world and it all started with a bet, which I really love. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so Annie was, um, her real name was Annie Kopchowski. Um, She was a Latvian immigrant living in Boston um, in the early 1890s. She had several children, she was married, um, she had a job. And for some reason, and all this is a little bit obscure, um, she was chosen or she volunteers to um, start to to be the person to um, resolve a bet. And the bet was that a woman couldn't cycle around the world in a certain amount of time. Um, This was a time of sort of great Victorian exploration and endeavour. And there were lots of people who were setting themselves challenges or trying to beat other people's challenges, like, you know, the Phileas Fogg kind of around the world in 80 days. There was a woman called Nellie Bly, who um, was a journalist who um, circumnavigated the globe using every different type of transport. Um, so there was lots of this um, was happening. And a man had um, been cycling around the world um, and unfortunately was was murdered um, during his trip um but up until that point his his um stories of of how he was progressing were kind of published in newspapers and and they were getting lots of publicity um so these these two men um if they did exist came up with a this this one said that it wasn't possible another said that you know they would bet, bet that it was um so they um they came across Annie somehow. <laughs> um, and she was quite an unusual um, person to um, take on this this um, challenge because she'd never actually been on a bicycle before. So two weeks before she left, she um, learned how to ride a bike, um, which which is, yeah, it's you'd think you'd need a little bit more training. Pretty that, phenomenal. But, yeah. <laughs> but she yeah she was uh I think I think we would say she was very gung-ho and uh in a few yeah a few weeks later she was leaving her hometown of Boston saying waving goodbye to her children and her husband um and she was off and she was she so part of the um wager the bet was that she also had to um attract sponsorship what we would call it sponsorship now they sort of described it as she had to create a certain amount of income. So the sponsorship funded her trip. So one of those sponsors was the Londonderry Lithium Springs, who were a water company. Um, and that's why she changed her name. She became Annie Londonderry. And I think it, it gave her a new identity as this new, you know, she wasn't a mother living in Boston at the moment. She was Annie Londonderry, who was cycling around the world. And so she had a sign on her bike that she hung from a bicycle advertising London Lyceum Springs. And as she progressed along her journey, she, she took off more and more advertising, <laughs> which is very funny. And she set off first towards New York and uh, spent quite a lot of time in New York doing publicity and various other things which you think when you're under a time pressure 
and I can't recall exactly at this moment the number of days she had. I think it was about 180 um, in order to do this um, trip. And she, but she was also very taken with doing interviews and publicity. Um, so she got swept away with that um, and then started heading towards the West Coast where she was going to get a boat to Asia. Um, got as far as Chicago and realised that she wouldn't make it over the mountains before the snows came. So again, not the best planning. Um, and at this point, she was still riding a, um, a, a sort of women-specific drop frame bicycle. She was still in her long skirts. It was quite, it's a very heavy bicycle. It was all quite arduous. Um, and she was going to drop out. She she thought, I, I just can't do this. Um, and a a uh, bicycle company then stepped in and said, look, we'll give you a man's bicycle. Um, and she then started wearing rational dress. Um, so she was already, she shared pounds and pounds of surplus weight. And so she decided she would continue. And then she became a real passionate advocate of, of rational dress for women as well. And um, there, so at this point she headed back to New York um, where she got a boat to France. By the time she arrived in France, she was quite a celebrity people were expecting her she went to Paris did more interviews and as she cycled all the way through France she was always accompanied by um cycling groups and press and there was always someone um riding along with her um and by the time she got to the south of France yeah she was she was really famous in the country um but probably I should mention at this point that although she was her mission was to circumnavigate the globe by bike. There was no, um, they hadn't actually written in um, how far she had to cycle. So there was a fairly liberal use of trains, boats, obviously. Um, uh, but yes, the bike was with her and she obviously did a lot of cycling as well, but but there was quite a lot of uh of, of other transport <laughs> well you, you can't take it away from her spirit spirit is no, there, is exactly. there clearly I mean, that, that's the thing we have to recognize at this at this time that what she did was really utterly audacious um and she then ended up going through asia and being i think quite inventive um about what happened to her along the way um because by this point she really understood the publicity game um, so she said that she'd been captured um, in the by sort of Japanese and put in a war camp. She'd been shot at, and I think it's fairly. I think we can confidently say these things didn't happen, and, and certainly in terms of the time frame, <laughs> it just wouldn't have been time for this. Um, she eventually made it back to the west coast of America. I think she had picked up um, a boyfriend along the way. <laughs> at some point um and she made it back to boston um within the time frame and had an extraordinary journey incredible adventures even if some of them were a little bit embellished i think we can say that what she did was really really phenomenal i mean it's incredible doing it on a bike as well the the heavy frames and as you say the dress and then no gears i can't even imagine riding up a hill without a change of gears and these women are just 
incredibly strong. Um, and I think what else strikes me about them is we've just had two phenomenal women riding around France and they've just done under um, t- a, a thousand miles in 10 days for women in sport fundraising for us. And, and part of that and part of their kind of their, their, their aim and their mission for the trip was to inspire women in midlife to take time for themselves and find themselves again because uh, there's a stat that shows I think uh, women in midlife only have about 35 minutes a day to themselves so they wanted to go away and for for one in particular she left her five-year-old son and it's the longest she's been away from him and I know she, at a point she found that really hard and they just finished on Saturday and they had an absolutely wonderful time and learn so much about cycling and also about themselves even over a relatively short space of time but you know we're not talking about women that are you know single and carefree but even in these days we're talking about women who've got families and children and they're still think you know still think it's really important to go out and and prove a point which is amazing yeah absolutely I think it's 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 brilliant and 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 that's a sort of point that I talk about in the book is that men have always been off having adventures and it's never ever questioned whether they're leaving families behind but for women it's always what's happening with your children what's happening with your you know your responsibilities or the other um thing that comes up is is it safe um which is which is another sort of um narrative which is which has really stopped many women from from doing things um, which is a which is just a massive shame. Now we we of course need to talk about the the suffragettes because the bike was hugely popular um, among among the suffragettes, and of course it helped help them to build a movement. I think you reference it as the the suffragette internet. So um, talk a little bit about why the bike and how the bike became such an important um, piece of machinery for them. Yeah. Um... So this was, we have to sort of remember this is the early um, 1900s. Very few people owned cars. Um, only sort of very wealthiest would have um, personal private vehicles. And so transport was still quite limited. You know, there were trains, um, but, you know, obviously they're not going to take you to uh, you know, everywhere you need to get to. And in order for the um, movement to be successful, they really had to spread the word far and wide to take it to um, small villages, towns, you know, wherever they could to kind of tell, raise awareness of this issue and get women to join the movement. Um, and so it was an organised part of their activities. Um, we know that um, in London, um, women um, suffragettes would meet on a on Saturday and they would cycle out to um, local towns and villages together um, and do speeches, spread the votes for women newspaper, um, and we also know about um, very in more detail about someone called Alice Hawkins, who was based in Leicester, um, and she was very active on the bicycle. She was part of the Clarion Cycling Club, which is um, a socialist cycling club, um, and she was a very very um, uh, involved suffragette. She, in fact, she even ended up in prison um, once or twice um, for her activities um, in in London when um, she went down for protests. Um, but cycling was really cool to what um, Alice did to to help the movement in in her region. So every weekend, she and her her fellow suffragettes um, would again cycle to to towns and villages, um, getting the word out there. 
um, taking literature and doing speeches um, and just getting it as far and wide as possible. Um, so, yeah, it really was absolutely fundamental to the movement because without it, they, they just wouldn't have got to certain areas at all. It just would have been just too difficult, um, too time-consuming. Um, and as the movement became more militarised, um, where they there was you know they were take, um, undertaking activities like arson, um, <laughs> letterbox bombs, and um, I you should say that all all the militarised activities were never um, intended to hurt anyone. So they were you know whenever they did this, they always made sure that there was no one there in the house or or whatever target there was. Um, and there were two women who who led quite a campaign of terror across Suffolk. Um, to all to the outsiders, they looked like they were on holiday. Um, and that's what they told everyone. They stayed in guest houses, but they managed to set alight um, several piers along the way, um, uh, one of which burned down entirely. I think it was Felix Stowe. Um, and they were apprehended um, in the end because it just became too suspicious. These two women who were on a cycling holiday in Suffolk, and it happened at every single place. They <laughs> but <went>. they stopped. There's <laughs> <laughs> something going on, a hotel burning down or a pier. Um, but yes, and, and other um, women at this time were sort of, yeah, using them as getaway vehicles and... Um, I absolutely love that. It made me laugh out loud. That that just the thought of you know you know setting something alight and then you know making a getaway on a on a bike is just brilliant. (laughs) Um, We've spoken quite a lot about obviously the the grassroots level, but there were more elite level women cyclists in in history that we perhaps don't know about. And one of those is Alfonsina Strada, who competed against men. Um, and I think the, the press actually called her the devil in a dress, um, which is probably no surprise given the climate back then. But um, tell us a little bit about her and, and you know, why she was so special. Yeah, she was born in the um, late 1890s in rural Italy. And she somehow came across a bicycle quite early on. I think it was someone had one of her family members have won it as a prize um, in a competition. And she just absolutely fell in love with cycling, became completely obsessed by it. Um, she ended up marrying another very passionate cyclist who really supported her in her um, pursuit to become essentially a professional cyclist, um, which was really quite unusual at this time. Um, and in Italy, it's famous for the Giro d'Italia, um, and also Lombardia, which were um, so in the late teens when she was she was she was starting to um, take part in bike races, um, the ones that were um, allowed. Um, she entered the Lombardia um, because at that time they hadn't specific, specified that only men could take part. And I think because they they didn't think that any woman would ever... It was just assumed, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she took part in this this very famous men's race um, and she got a phenomenal amount of publicity. Um, I mean, she didn't do terrifically well, but she actually didn't do that badly either. But um, a few years later, um, 
the organizer of the Lombardia, who also organized the Giro d'Italia, has a problem that the his star racers that normally took part in the Giro d'Italia that got all the publicity were refusing to take were sorry were um yes were refusing to take part because on the on the basis of um they weren't um going to get paid enough that they felt that they weren't getting paid enough and so again the organizer was was quite a canny publicist and decided that having Alfonsina take part would make this a more attractive proposition for the media um so they entered her as um under a pseudonym um but not a very um difficult one to work out alfonso strada uh, <laughs> and then uh, as the race started it obviously became apparent that it was alfonsina um and she the again we have to sort of think about the fact that the, the you know the Giro d'Italia is is a, a really tough multi-stage race today back then when roads were largely unpaved um the bicycles were nothing like they are today it would have been to take part in this would have been really even more grueling and an extraordinary feat athletic feat um so she 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 managed to keep up but it, she had a few she unfortunately had a few accidents at one point she had to i think fix her broken handlebar by using a piece of broom um and she missed on one day she missed the cutoff for finishing which would officially make you um excluded from the race um but again the organizer said we still want you to be part of this so we'll 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 turn a blind eye on this instance and she was hugely successful famous um through Italy for her for taking part in this every town she went through she was sort of lifted up off her bicycle and held aloft um by the adoring crowds um so it, it had achieved um what what the organizer had hoped which is getting attention for the for the race and selling newspapers um and alfonsina thought this was a breakthrough for um women's cycling and that from now on she would be able to enter the race every year but when she tried to apply the following year she was told no this is a men's only race um so it's she was essentially used but she also did shine a light on the fact that women could take part in these race in these types of races. There was no reason that they should be men only um, activities. Um, and she continued racing. She set um, some hour records um, in velodrome. She raced in different races in Europe where she was where women were permitted, um, and. Yeah, she she never fell out of love with cycling, despite the fact that um, she really hadn't been supported. Yeah, she'd been through quite a torrid time, really, hadn't she? I mean, yeah. the organisers definitely need to work on their detective skills there. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I mean, it sounded like, I mean, I you know, I read, like I say, the um, the press called her the devil in a dress. And, you know, they obviously launched a little bit of a hate campaign against her as well, um, which yeah. is no surprise. But but at least, you know, she had some she had fans, which is great to hear because I didn't I didn't know that part that she did have some adoring fans, which is really good. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many amazing stories in this book. Um, Dervla Murphy is another one who springs to mind, who I know you, you met Dervla. I did, yeah. I had a really um, extraordinary... So Dervla, for people who don't know, she's an Irish, an Irish um, writer, traveller and cyclist who... Um, uh, she very sadly died, um, a, it's three weeks ago now, um, in her 90s. And she has had the most extraordinary travelling life. Um, and she, um, her most famous book is about her journey cycling from um, Ireland to Delhi um, in her 30s, which was a trip that she decided she would take when she was 10 years old. Um, but unfortunately, she, from the age of 16, she was caring for her mother full time. And until her mother died, she wasn't able to take this, this trip. But she held on to the idea for, for decades. Um, and then that's her life became about travelling, much of which was on was on a bicycle. And yes, I was lucky enough to um, go and visit her in her home in, in Southern Ireland. I cycled there because I thought I couldn't come any other way. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't uh command her respects if I'd uh, turned up in uh, a car certainly but so. your planning wasn't great no <laughs> I had lots of punches. <laughs> and then cycling in the dark I think yeah lots of cycling in the dark lots of yeah lots of punches um lots of problems with my bike set up my bike bags yeah it was um a, a lesson in in why if you're doing a, a, a trip you might want to have a, a little bit of attention to your bicycle before you do it <laughs> I mean do you have any I mean you know all of these stories are incredible and there's there's so many women and far too many for us to talk about in in an hour podcast but um do you have a particular favorite was there one woman that you just thought you know I mean, clearly, Dervla, you were lucky enough to meet her, but perhaps some of the women who, um, you know, came before before our time that you would have loved to have met and had a conversation with. Um, oh, it's so difficult because it's it's really it's all of them. Um, I really loved um, the the women who um, British women who did end to end racing in the UK, which is a very in the sort of mid 20th century was really really popular form of racing um it's where you set a record of going place to place um and you, it's just individual riders um and there were a group of women who sort of took on from one, one to the other as as they kind of retired from it of, of setting these phenomenal records of of a thousand miles um so Eileen Sheridan is one of those women she's actually still with us she's she's in her 90s I think now um and I did speak to her briefly but she um yes set these really phenomenal records um and just the the amount of determination and grit to do that kind of that level of cycling um and they were really the first kind of really acknowledged professional women cyclists in the UK because they they came with sponsorship and so although um the this wasn't kind of racing as as we know it today um they were you know these were kind of really official records and and I think Eileen Sheridan's record was only beaten very very recently which considering all the advantages that we have today in terms of bicycles and and kit um, is really kind of says something. 
Yeah, that's incredible, um, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, throughout the research that you've you've done for this book and learning about this extraordinary history of these women um, and also being a keen cyclist, you have talked about some of the, the exclusions that these women face, but also the parallel that many women still face today. Um, obviously, we've mentioned some of those clothing and judgment, safety issues, affordability issues. Why do you think those barriers exist? And, you know, in your own experience? Um, oh, that's a difficult question to answer. I mean, it's, um, well, I mean, I think, as I've sort of said before, that the most fundamental is road safety um, and it's cycling infrastructure. And there doesn't seem to be the political will here to really make fundamental change on that. Um, there have been some, there has been some improvements since, the, particularly since the pandemic as well. Um, but it's, it's nowhere near enough to kind of level up, you know, what's the disparity between men and women cycling. Um, but also, as I've said as well previously, that it's still a political act for a woman to be on a bicycle. So what women look like, how they're observed, it, all of that still um, has a very um, pernicious effect on, on the numbers participating. Um, and so all these things are quite difficult to change overnight. Um, they need really kind of fundamental systematic systematic change um, about how how women are viewed in society. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's big, <laughs> big things. But you know, there's obviously lots that we can do to encourage women, you know, that that cycling, you know, can be safe. You know, you can find safe places to cycle. Again, you don't have to wear head-to-toe lycra. You can you should be able to wear what you want. And um access to to bikes and cycling i think is 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 fairly good now i mean you know schemes like cycle to work where you can you know buy a bike you know you don't have to pay up front those are really incredible there's also charities which help people who um, can't afford bicycles one charity that i work with helps um refugees and asylum seekers um provides them with bicycles and teaches them to ride bikes because it's it's you know it's still an empowering thing to do mm-hmm. and it and it, having a bicycle if you can't afford to take public transport is really um is really life-changing there's so much about the bicycle which is still um as powerful and empowering and independence making as as it was back in back in the 18. 80s and the amount of pleasure it gives people as well is is has also not diminished so there's just still so much um Mm. about the bicycle it you know has hope i hope a really important future particularly um you know when we're talking about trying to get to net zero how can we do that if we're not encouraging people to make journeys by bicycle or walking um, yeah and electric bikes is a really amazing um, development, I think, for for making all that possible and getting more people on bikes. 
So there are there are really positive signs, but there just also needs to be some really fundamental things that that need to change as well. Yeah. There's a real sense, isn't there, of that childhood freedom when you get on a bike. Many of us learned to ride a bike as a child, and and as you say, and in, in you know in your own life, gave it up for a few years and, and reconnected with it as an adult, and you forget actually just that kind of real freedom and the wind in your hair and yeah. just being able to kind of cover so many miles in a short space of time and it's it's less intense than than running so you do have a little bit more headspace I think to to think when you're on a bike yeah I do all my best thinking on a bike (laughs) (laughs) um so what would would your hope be I mean you know we've we've talked there about the systematic change that that absolutely needs to happen and, and the safety which is a huge concern but what would be your hope for the future of female participation in cycling I would hope that we wouldn't need to be having conversations in this way anymore, (laughs) that it should be just not even a consideration what, what, what gender you are, um, whether you're, you know, if you're riding a bike that, you know, it's just, we all ride bikes. We all, you know, we're all able to, you know, we're all um, have the capability to, you know, to ride bikes and it shouldn't be, you know, come down to there shouldn't be exclusions on term in terms of um, gender, and I think things like, you know, I alluded to this at the beginning, you know, the fact that there is a women's Tour de France this year, the inaugural women's Tour de France, that will hopefully change perceptions around whether cycling is something that men do rather than women, is that it's that it's open to everyone, and that's yeah, that's really what I'd the image of cycling that I hope will exist in the future it's certainly that visibility will help and even having the visibility at elite level um, we know that filters down to grassroots Um, and obviously we've seen fantastic things from team GB cyclists but you know many of those are in a velodrome which is not accessible to the vast majority of of people Um, (laughs) and if you've been to a velodrome and seen the size how steep those banks are uh, even that someone who's a confident cyclist probably would um, veer away from getting on a bike around a track with no brakes (laughs) yeah so um yeah I think it, it, it it you know let's hope that you know we can start to see more women cycling outdoors you know just in public in general and I think that will hopefully give many more women the confidence to to get on a bike you know no matter what they're wearing or what they look like they should be completely free of that judgment yeah Yeah. (laughs) oh and and cleats yeah exactly so or high or high heels I mean wear cleats wear high heels wear whatever you like on a bike (laughs) that's the message um thanks Hannah is there anything else that you would like to to kind of leave us with you know the final thoughts just the fact that yeah the bicycle 130 40 years later still has so much potential and is still such a radical um piece of machinery um, Mm. which really hasn't changed very much in you know in sort of fundamental terms it's still very very closely connected to how it was and it just shows what a perfect kind of invention it really was um, but yeah, I still believe in its its revolutionary power for everyone. Well, thank you so much for your time. I've really, really enjoyed 
reading the book and really enjoyed hearing um, from you about some more of those stories in, in detail. And yes, hopefully your book and this podcast can inspire, you know, even just one or two women to get on a bike would be a step forward. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks again, Hannah, for enlightening us about some of the amazing women in your book, which is Revolutions, How Women Changed the World on Two Wheels. It's well worth a read. Hopefully it can inspire more women to get in the saddle. Thanks once again to our podcast sponsor, CSM Live. And thank you for listening. If you do want to find out more about women in sport and the work we do, head to our website, womeninsport.org. And if you're in a position to donate, it's much appreciated and helps us continue our work to make sure that no one is excluded from the joy, fulfilment and lifelong benefits of sport.